Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. If you have ever dreamed of being a rock and roll star, this episode is going to light you up. My guest today, Annie Davis, decided, you know, in her mid-40s, as you do, that she wanted to become a rock and roll star. So in the middle of the pandemic, she began taking lessons and taught herself how to play drums and guitar from scratch. Uh, (laughs) Annie loved music as a kid. In fact, she immersed herself in it, both personally and educationally. But her instrument as a kid and and a college-age student was the trumpet. So she did play in jazz bands, and she wanted to pursue a music degree and a music career at the time. But here comes that all-too-familiar story that we've all been told. She was basically told by quote-unquote loved ones that a music degree wasn't going to get her anywhere in life. It wasn't a quote-unquote real career. So she ended up learning the sciences because this music nerd was also a human biology nerd. So she got her bachelor's degree in human biology, and she eventually found her way to a doctorate in chiropractic. So the story behind that is that while she was pursuing her education, she was also immersing herself in a love of athletics, including running, mountain biking, triathlon, adventure racing. And because of some really, really bad advice that she received from an orthopedist, she knew that she wanted to help others, which is why she opened her own practice in chiropractic care. So picked up, moved her stuff to Austin, Texas, and opened a practice called Run Lab, where for the past 10 plus years, she has helped now thousands of runners stay in the game of life instead of telling them, you know what, you're done. Not only does she have practices in Austin, but she also has satellite offices in Florida and in Arizona. So, but this is not where the story ends. So she clearly has the hustle and hustled her ass off from nothing and built a huge following as a practitioner. But now she is hustling to build another following with her rock band, Trashy Annie. As she says on her website, starting an original rock band at the age of 44 during a worldwide pandemic was a surreal experience, to say the least. But three years later, just recently in 2023, She found herself on the stage at the Cactus Theater in Lubbock, Texas, where she was honored as the CMA of Texas Americana Artist of the Year. She was signed to a record label, which is indie giant Cleopatra Records, and she's about to release her full-length 
first rock and roll record on May 19th, 2023. It, it is never too late to be the person that you dreamed of being when you were young. And if you happen to be in the Austin area and you are listening to this episode on April 24th or 25th of 2023, you do not want to miss Trashy Annie's album release party on the 25th. It is at the 13th floor in Austin, where you'll be able to pick up a physical copy of the album before you can even stream it. So you don't want to miss that if you happen to be in the Austin area. Go to TrashyAnnie.com for all the details and all of her dates if you can't make this one. All right, let's welcome Annie Davis, lead singer, songwriter, and guitarist of Trashy Annie. Oh, and stick around because she plays us a tune at the end. All right, bring it on, Annie. Okay, but first we're going to start with a toast. Yay! Cheers. Welcome, Thank you. Annie Davis, to the kitchen table, the Woo-hoo. coveted kitchen table. Oopsie, I, I just said, oh, look, it makes a lot of noise, and then I just plopped <laughs> my glass right down on the, on the table. Um, I am looking so forward to this conversation because I want to know what it's like to become a rock star in your 40s. So tell me everything. <laughs> I don't know that I have become a rock star yet, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm on the way, right? So, yes. uh, yeah. Where do you want me to start? You are on the way. Well, okay. So I know you in many capacities as do a lot of these people that are going to be listening today. So I know that music and the music career that you're pursuing right now is relatively new, at least to those of us that have known you for a while. But as you were alluding to before we got on the microphone, you were saying that music was something that you loved as a kid. So tell me about little Annie. Yes, little Annie. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, so I grew up super poor. I grew up on welfare and food stamps and single parent household and that whole thing. And so very early on, I knew that there wasn't going to be money for college. It was just, I, I knew I wanted to do great things, but I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get there. And so, uh, in fifth grade, they did the thing in our elementary school where everybody goes to the gym and they've got all these instruments sitting around in the corners and you get to go try them all out and you, you can, you can pick a school instrument. And then if you want to be in the band. And so I wanted to play drums like real, real bad. And so with drums, they put you in this corner of the gym and they, they make everybody do this rhythm exercise. And so then people who didn't have rhythm, they said, no, you can't, you can't play <laughs> drums. So I made the cut. I was the only girl who made the cut. And I was super excited about drums. I was like, okay, you know, bring it on drum kit, like Neil Peart style, right? Like, give me everything you got to make noise. And they hand me a little plastic drum pad. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Oh, no. <laughs> Was it like the thing with like the electronic Mm -hmm. drum kit with like the four? It's not even that. There's no electronic anything. It's a literal (laughs) plastic circle that you beat on with rubber so that you can practice your drum beats. And so that's what they kept us on for. And, you know, smartly on on their side, you don't want a bunch of fifth graders playing drum kits, right? Worst thing ever. So anyway, we had these little drum pads that we were learning and that was the whole first year. And I, and so I got towards the end of fifth grade and I was like, this is bullshit. I want something that makes a bunch of noise, you know? And so by that point, all of the instruments were already taken and everybody had borrowed, you know, whatever they did from the school. Somebody and took so the recorder and the everybody, oboe. Yeah, and all the things. Yeah. Yeah. The oboe. Yes, the yes. oboe. <laughs> Nobody took the oboe. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Let's the oboe. be real. In fact, it's still sitting there. It's still sitting there, exactly. <laughs> so there was a trombone left and there was a trumpet. And I said, okay, give me the trombone. So I took the trombone home started trying to teach myself and then came back. And that was when I discovered I have 
ungodly short arms, like T-Rex arms. And so I, uh, this came back to haunt me later in life when I took up swimming. But anyway, uh, so I, uh, so I gave the trombone back cause I couldn't reach any of the positions at the end of the thing. And, uh, and so then they said, well, we've got this trumpet. And it was like all dented and the keys were broken and the tuning side was stuck and everything. I was like, great, I'll take it, you know? So, uh, so took that thing home and started teaching myself to play. And uh, my grandpa had been a, a uh, trumpet player in the military. And so over that summer between fifth and sixth grade, he taught me how to play The Stars at Night. That was my first song I ever learned. And so then Isn't I was just that hooked. ironic? I know. And, it was funny, right? Yeah, because you grew yeah, up in Oregon. I was. I was. Yeah, yeah, we had moved up there when I was two. And so I was coming back to my parents split when I was five. So I was coming back to visit my dad in the summertime. Um, and that's when I learned to play that first song on the trumpet. So I loved it. I was like, this is, this is the instrument for me. It's great. So took that thing home and just would spend all of my free time teaching myself to play and would skip class, you know, later in life and go play the trumpet, like super nerdy. It wasn't like going and doing drugs in the corner. You know, I was like, let me go work on my scales <laughs> you know? so, on the yeah, trumpet, on yeah. the trumpet. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. So it was great. It was this um, this really cool transition into, I was really introverted. I, I didn't have, you know, social skills at all. And so having the trumpet and kind of music as the center of my life back then was such an important part of sort of growing into myself. And so I became a drum major in high school and that was a huge pivotal moment for just getting more confident and learning to be okay with myself and everything else. And so I played music all through high school and every band I could play in decided I want to be a music major. I want to do this for a living. So I got into uh, I got into college and paid for most of my college on trumpet scholarship, and then um, was in you know jazz bands and orchestras and concert bands and all the things. Uh, but I could only ever read music. I never really developed my ear. I couldn't solo and improvise and all that stuff that I kind of envisioned like real musicians can do. You know, and that and is so, such a difference to me from what I hear nowadays, where people don't learn to read music. They they learn by ear. So you yeah. were almost the exact, it opposite. was the exact opposite. I couldn't, I couldn't, I could, I didn't have any kind of an ear. I couldn't hear changes. I was like, I don't know how people solo. I don't know how they do this, but I could read music. I could play anything you put in front of me. And so, um, I got through close to the end of college and I was again, like pursuing music and thinking this was the direction I wanted to go. And then it got sort of close to the end of that. And I was like, Oh shit. Mm. Like <laughs> nobody makes money as a musician. <laughs> what am I doing? Like yeah. this is, I'm going to be on welfare and food stamps too. Like this yeah. is, what have I done? <laughs> and so the cycle began. made a great mistake, you know, but I loved music still. And so, um, there was another complicating factor where I was just I was very young and impressionable in my young 20s at this point. And uh, this guy that I was dating who was quite a bit older than me, he really was very jealous and, um, you know, mentally abusive, frankly, and did not like that I was going out and playing these late shows with ska bands and things back when ska had its like heyday yeah. for five minutes, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, in, the, in the 90s. So anyway, um, so he, he didn't like that I was doing that. And he put a lot of pressure on me to stop doing all of that stuff. And so I did. I was young and I didn't know. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to get out of music for a while and just just figure out how to make money and, you know, appease this guy I'm dating and blah, blah, blah. Oh, this it was, is, uh, yeah, it was, I'm it was already horrible. angry right, right horrible. now. Yeah. Horrible. Um, and I was just like, you know, I was really, I had never dated anybody in high school. Like I said, I was super introverted and shy and just didn't, you know, didn't have a lot of experience. And this just felt like, okay, this is, he's, he, he's, he knows what's best for me, you know? Um, but it was really a bad situation for sure. Let me, let me, okay. So th there's the foundation of the music um, I also know you as an incredibly talented athlete, like very fast runner. 
adventure racer, like champion adventure racer. So there's that side of you. And quite frankly, that's the side that I know the most and how we got to know each other when you moved to Austin several years ago. Where was that happening? And when did that come to fruition? Because I mean, you are incredibly talented as an athlete as well. It's, uh, it's, so I didn't do any of that stuff as a kid either. I got into that in my early twenties and actually my first sport was when I was dating that guy, that same guy, um, he was into downhill mountain biking and I said, I want to try this. And so I bought this bike off of Craigslist that was a Santa Cruz super eight and it was like 50 pounds and it had 10 <laughs> inches of suspension in the front and back, you know, like, <laughs> so, and I started taking this thing up the ski lift and racing it down. And that was my first sport. And I was like, Oh, I really like being on a bike. And so it became sort of this slippery slope into, athleticism that I had never explored at all. I was not an athletic kid and never done a sport. And so, um, so it was great. And then I got from, I went from downhill mountain biking into cross country mountain biking and then kind of into running. Cause I thought, you know, I kind of want to get a road bike. And then I was like, you know, I want to dabble in running a little bit and then started into the triathlon world because I didn't know how to swim. I, I hadn't, I was terrified of drowning as a kid. And so it was like this big fear thing for me to just learn how to swim a length of the pool, you know, so that Mm -hmm, I could, you know, mm -hmm. not feel like I was going to die. So I thought I'm going to do triathlon to kind of prove to myself that I've conquered this swimming thing. And that was how I ended up getting into tries was I just would go to the pool and splash around and try to figure out how to get from one end to the other, you know, never take lessons or anything. It was like, I can do this. It looked like a total idiot. Yeah. Um, Head out of the pool, like everything. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some would say that hasn't changed much. The the pool has not. I am the worst swimmer. And it's all my short arms. Like, let's just blame it on what Uh, it is. The morphology, obviously. Our appendages (laughs) match. Yeah. I'm going to start using that excuse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So still a terrible swimmer. But got into the triathlon and then that was all around that same time like early to mid 20s you know kind of getting out of music getting into sports uh eventually going back to school and going down the pre-med route I was a volunteer firefighter at the time so I loved um I got my EMT license and I loved emergency medicine and kind of all that medical world and so all of that was kind of happening at the same time and then got into running more because once I did my first triathlon, I was like, oh, this is, I like this. And I like how I feel. And I like that it's something very empowering for me as a human being to just feel like I'm, you know, taking charge of my body and I'm feeling good out there on a race course. And again, not, you know, dying in the swim was like this big empowering moment. I mean, I was, let's be, I was very last out of the water. You know, I, I look at the, I, I, I pick my head up at one point during the race and I'm like, I am going parallel to where I'm supposed to be going. I definitely need to go with that way so you know it was I was really bad um but the bike made up for it and the run made up for it and so um it's still my Achilles heel but uh, that's how I got into triathlon was kind of through that hey I want to do something good for myself and then started getting into it and really loved it and were you in Portland at the time yeah when all of this was happening yeah okay okay so you finish your undergrad yeah music major you're getting into sport you're still with this person yeah um when did you decide, okay, pre-med, I want to. So I wanted to go go back back. to school. So I had, when I was, I was dating that guy, I got out of music. I got into real estate because it was this, he was doing it. His parents were, his dad was doing it. He's like, we can do this together and we can, you know, kind of be a team. And again, at the time, just kind of, you know, doing whatever he thought was a good idea for me. And so, um, we ended up going into the real estate world and I did that for a couple of years and 
it, it was horrible. It was a horrible, <laughs> horrible world for me. It is like, you know, there's a lot of people out there that uh, there's a very small percentage of real estate agents who are very, very good. And they make the large bulk of the money because there are so many of them that are terrible and they never have done any kind of you know, real education. I mean, your real estate degree is pretty easy to get. And so you get a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to just make a bunch of money and just go get my real estate degree. So you get a lot of slimy people in that industry. And then you get some really great ones as well. I have some really dear friends who are real estate agents and they're amazing, but they're the minority in that field. Mm -hmm. So I hated it. And so I ended up deciding to go back to school um, well, t I mean, so I wasn't making a lot of money at real estate. What I was doing is making a lot of money selling weed. <laughs> so just, if we're just going to be candid about yes. what was really going I mean, on. I, could, I was, mean, this podcast yes. is I could never do that. Right. So, so, that's just, yeah. so there was that. So I, so I, you know, we, we had a whole bunch of weed plants that were all in the basement of this house and just sold that um, and got up to a, a, a really unhealthy number of weed plants and decided this is probably also a very bad idea. So well, I'm um, just chalking yeah. this up to one more reason why I like you. Okay. Check. All right. <laughs> so, so we did. So, so this guy and I were doing that to make money and then real estate kind of is, you know, trying to figure it out, but I, I hated it. So I decided I wanted to go back to school. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of that relationship because he didn't want me to go back to school. He didn't want me to, you know, further my station in life or whatever. And mm. so again, mm. lots of jealousy. And so I said, no, I'm going to, I need to do this. And that was sort of where things started to break off. And when I finally started to take, um, you know, kind of empower myself for what I needed to do for my life. And so I went back to school and I started taking science classes because I'd always loved that anyway. And, uh, and that was when I started going down the pre-med pre -med okay. route. Yeah. And I loved it and uh, got really deep into it. Was still playing music, but, you know, just like on my own at home, play my trumpet a little bit here and there. Yeah. Um, no other instruments at this point. No, no, okay. no, no, no. Just okay. trumpet. Okay. And so, but didn't have any bands to play in or anything. So I just kind of noodled around at home for a little bit. But yeah, I really dove into the, the science side. And then that whole thing ended up unfolding because I had gotten a little more heavily into triathlon and running in this time frame, which would have been like mid twenties mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, decided I wanted to do an Ironman. I was like, I want to do, I want to do like whatever's the biggest, hardest thing you can do. <laughs> I want to do that, you know? Yeah. And, and was some of that like, in, like reclaiming your power, your For sure. Power? Okay. I think it was a big part of it, you know, yeah. going back to school and deciding I wanted to train for something that seemed like something I could never, ever do. Mm. But that was a big, big deal for me. And so I said, I want to do this thing. And even deciding to get my doctorate, that was kind of the same thing. I was like, I can't do this. So I'm going to, that's the thing I want to do because I'm pretty sure I can't do it, you know? And so I think it's, um, both those things were happening simultaneously, training for my first Ironman and working towards what I have envisioned to eventually be my doctorate were, were all kind of this reinventing of myself, you know, after coming out of being sort of a shell of my former self when I was with this guy. And so, um, so yeah, got into it, did a bunch of science and, uh, I ended up, I was having all kinds of injuries, uh, as I was getting more into running and having started running as an adult, it wasn't, didn't come natural. I didn't understand what I was doing, but I was pretty sure that there was something wrong with the way that I was running. And that's why I was getting all these problems. Cause as soon as I'd get rid of one thing, something else would pop up. So I ended up doing all this research and ending up in this orthopedist office. And he said, he did an MRI of my knee and he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with your knee. What you need to do is probably just stop running and, and start cycling more because running's just really hard on your knees. 
And I remember thinking, like, this is such a horseshit answer, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, first of all, you're an orthopedist who supposedly specializes in runners. Like, this is, I had run nine miles to my appointment that day, and I was training for an Ironman. Like, this is not the right answer to somebody in their yeah. mid-20s who's like, hey, I want to be healthier by running. Yeah, what a, it's like a cop-out or yes. just it was terrible disregard. It was, I don't, it, was a, it was a weird conversation because I felt like this was the guy that I should see. And when he, when that was his answer, I was like, this is ridiculous. So I remember this was the pivotal moment in what ended up happening professionally for me because I threw his card in the garbage can and I said, I am going to solve this for myself. And so I ended up taking all of the biomechanics classes I could take. And I ended up jumping into chiropractic school instead of going the MD route because I wanted to work with the body. I was like, I want to work with biomechanics and I don't know anything about chiropractors. I'd never been to one, but I knew that I had all my pre-med done for, and I could get into chiropractic school with the same requirements. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Because at the time, physical therapy would have been an option, but they didn't have direct access. So you had to go through an MD to get a prescription. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, I don't want that. I want autonomy yeah. to be able to practice how I want. And that's still state by state, Yeah, isn't still it? state by like state. PT. It's changing, fortunately, yeah. but yeah, state okay. by state. Okay. So decided to go the chiropractic route, again, having never been to a chiropractor. Um, but it ended up being exactly the right fit for me because we learned so much about the body, so much about biomechanics. And so I got out of school and I worked inside of a triathlon training facility for a while and I worked inside of kind of a more gen pop just primary care type of place for a while and then ended up moving to Austin just deciding to pack my car and come down and you know come to Texas where my roots were because I was born in San Antonio and my dad was down here and I thought you know I'm just gonna do it and so I packed my car and you know quit my job and broke up with this lovely guy that I'd been dating for four years who had done nothing wrong and it was heartbreaking (laughs) but I was like I gotta go you know I just gotta do my thing so I packed the car and I showed up on my dad's doorstep and said, here I am, you know, I, I love you. <laughs> so, and I brought yep. my trumpet. And I brought my trumpet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I brought and so, my trumpet. Yep. And then ended up starting uh, Run Lab, which is yes. where we, you know, met yep. each other uh, a, a 10 years or so ago with the intent of working with people on their biomechanics and just helping them understand how to move better so they don't chase these injuries around over and over. And through that whole process of everything I've learned on the biomechanics side and, and everything else, you know, I haven't had any any issues from running since starting the company and have done four Ironmans and a bunch of 12 to 72 hour adventure races and all kinds of stuff, you know? And it's just, it was all about just looking at the mechanics and kind of changing the system and changing the message inside of this medical kind of broken medical model, um, working with athletic people. Yes. Because the model is, I'm sorry, you just can't run anymore. And that is not the answer. No. And it's not like it is not, it doesn't, or I shouldn't say it doesn't have to be the answer. And so that is like, that's where our stories converge is that is how I met you through a lot of work with, because I was working with, I had a team at the time that I, like that I was coaching a big team in town. And then uh, obviously I've done a lot of work with different running groups, different triathlon groups. And so one of the things that I'm shocked to hear that I didn't, really know is that you didn't have like whether it was this first boyfriend that you talked about or whether it was just your upbringing like you being shy and not um not having any like self-value surprises the shit out of me (laughs) based on who I met (laughs) and who I know because 
I immediately, I think one of the reasons why you have been successful first in business and now in music is like, you are so personable. You're so outgoing. You'll talk to anybody and you talk to people like a friend and not, I know everything and you know, you don't know anything. I I try. And I feel like so much of that came from being a kid and feeling like an outsider and sort of orbiting the real people, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, those people have their shit together. They know what to do. They know how to talk to people. And when you're an introvert, you observe all of that stuff, you know, and you see what works and what doesn't. And I think that's even what has helped me now in songwriting is just the constant observation of the world around me yeah. and kind of taking that and turning it into art. And I, I still it still exhausts me to go out and do the thing, you know, and to be, I'm sort of a forced extrovert. I can go into a room of people and and like you said, do the thing and talk to people. And I love it. I love the experience now, but I go home at night and I'm just flat. I'm so tired. You know, (laughs) it takes, I need some, some powering up just being by myself in my little hamster ball for a while. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. music is great because I can go sit down with my guitar and put those feelings into words in some way. Mm. And so I love that you say that because I, I feel like that's been an important change in my life in just not being scared of people, you know, and not being scared of conversations with strangers or standing up on a stage and singing to a bunch of people who are judging you, you know, all of that stuff. Um, I, I now very much pride myself on being on saying kind of fuck it worlds. Mm -hmm. Like just, I'm going to do the thing that makes me really happy and proud of myself. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, it's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally okay. It's not for everyone. It's not for everybody. And like, you know, the for 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 somebody for a quote unquote an outsider to come into Austin, which was at the time a very close knit athletic family, who, you know, this running group had this person that they referred people to, and this triathlon team had this, you know, rehab place that they referred people to, and it was very tight knit. And yeah. so for somebody like an outsider to come in and open a clinic. And then force yourself to go to races, force yourself to reach out to teams, um, to do how many free things you guys yeah. still do. You, I mean, you still yeah. do free stuff like free gate. I don't know. You don't do free gate analysis, but you do free talks. You do tacos and runs. And, and we were talking about this before you turn on the mic. Like you have always sort of led the charge on um, inclusivity and having your doors open to LGBTQAI plus community, like yeah. any underserved community. Yeah. You were the first, I feel like for people to go, oh yeah, that's where, that's my place. It's a big deal because I was that person, you know, I was somebody that they're saying, oh, don't run or you don't belong in this group or whatever. And I thought this, this is, this is messed up. Like everybody should be able to run. Anybody who wants to run or, you know, be athletic or, or just walk, even just get out the door to play with their grandkids, whatever it is, like this needs to be a home for those people. Um, because if you work, if you work your way into the traditional medicine, medical channels, it is so often, oh, well, you're not overweight with diabetes. We can't really help you. You know, you just need to get, you're fine. Like it just, Mm -hmm. if you can move, you're fine. And I thought that's, no, that doesn't make any sense because we need to help people live quality of life, you know, in in a great way. And movement helps that. I mean, I, I always have this whole thing that movement is medicine. You know, that's the best medicine we can have for ourselves is getting out your door every day and doing something. And the number of people we've had come up at races and just give us hugs in the middle of their race and say, I never thought I was going to be able to do this. Like it is the best 
best feeling in the world. I love it. I love it so much. Um, so anyway, it's just been a really cool business to, to be a part of and to feel like, you know, I started something that it, from nothing, you know, it was just me and my little video camera, not really knowing what I was doing. I was like, I got a cool name for a business, but I don't really know what we're going to do from there. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so to, to grow it now and I have locations in Tampa and Phoenix and here, and it's just, it's cool to see something like that kind of growing and spreading its wings and helping yeah. people. And it hasn't always been rainbows and unicorns oh, no. either. And I, oh, and no. before we, you know, like before we segue into the music thing, yeah. Um, you know, there have been fits and starts and I know that you've launched some initiatives that haven't gone uh, so many the, things. Yeah. And so many things. And yet like what, so there are lessons in those failures that, uh, that I know that you've taken with you and like, okay, these are, these are great, yeah. um, data points yeah. for things. And yeah. so in running a business and in growing, what lessons have you learned uh, along the way that that have served you as a business person and as this? I mean, now you you're still a business person, but now yeah. for your music career, yeah. It's I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is that you have to constantly be willing to pivot, and whether that's a hard pivot or a soft pivot. And sometimes you you hold on to these ideas as a business owner. You're like, but everybody should love this because I love it and because my friends love it. My mom loves it, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the market is ready for the thing. You know, we tried to launch a virtual gate analysis system probably eight years before it was the market was ready for it. Yeah. You know, if we tried to do it now, I think we could probably make some headway, but it was far too early. People you know, didn't just, understand virtual nope, anything. Nothing, then. nothing. And it just, even explaining to people what gate analysis is, is hard. People don't know what the word gate means. They don't know how that's different from what they do for free in a shoe store. And so even that we still struggle. But I think the biggest thing that I've learned in my professional career with this is you get back up and you figure, you do it again every day and you, you work on it every day and you say, okay, what's not working? How can we pivot? Because if you just hold too tightly on to your ideals about the way things should work, it, it, a lot of times it just, it never will go anywhere. You will never progress the business. And I think, um, it's hard. It's really hard to say, I know this should work, but it's not working. What else can we do? Mm. You know, I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I bought a gym in Phoenix. I bought a gym in Colorado that I then had to close. I bought, I've partnered with people all over the country to try to have them be resellers of our product. I've put our company in other people's locations. You I've had, had retail division I, for a while. Yeah. I, I yeah. I bought a, f- a shoe store and tried to put, you know, the, the run lab concept inside a shoe store that didn't work. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things, but because I keep continuing to pivot and try new stuff and say, okay, this isn't working. We failed, but one of our core values with the company is fail forward. Like, okay, what did we learn? You know, it's okay to fail, but let's not fail the same way every single time. You mm-hmm. know, let's learn from it and keep making different mistakes. <laughs> yes, yes, that is so huge. So, and for anyone listening yeah. to this right now, I mean, in any endeavor, it is so important to know that like there will be colossal failures that yep. may cost thousands of dollars. Yep. But yep. if you're learning, if you're failing forward and you know, your whole thing is just not being afraid to, to try it. And yep. one of my, a uh, question I have is like, when you did come to town, you had this audacity to, to create your own thing. You know, you had run lab, which is a brilliant name by the way. Um, Thank you. yeah. And you had, you got kits right away, like really bright kits for all of the races when you couldn't yeah. miss it. Why was it important for you to start your own thing rather than like just 
oh, I think I'll assimilate into, yeah. you know, this practice that's already here and doing well? It's a, it's a really good question. I didn't feel like anybody, not, not just in Austin, but I just didn't see this model being done the way I wanted it to be done anywhere in the country yet anyway. So it didn't feel like we could come in and just, you know, partner or work with somebody else or me just get a job inside of somebody else's facility because my experience in the medical world had been, like I said earlier, one of just frustration and recognizing that not only did that doctor tell me that I should stop running, he also didn't give me an option of anywhere else to go. He didn't say, oh, you know what? I can't help you, but this PT group over here would be great, or this coach would be great, or whatever. And so I've always thought that it, you know, this idea that it takes a village is such a big deal. And so if you've got great running groups and you've got great PT facilities and great rehab facilities and everything else, or recovery facilities, all of those are important, but you also need a biomechanics analysis place that can fit into that model. And so instead of trying to go and, you know, partner and be inside of somebody else's thing, I wanted to build something that was really niche focused on that. So then we could refer back and forth to the recovery places or the rehab, whatever, 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 Mm -hmm. the shoe Mm -hmm. stores, all of those things. And so that's why I think it was important because I felt one, I'm just entrepreneurial in general. And I didn't know this about myself until probably 10 years ago when I started run lab, I was like, Oh, this is where I was meant to be. I don't think I could work for anybody else anymore. Because I just, I, I have my vision and I want to see if I can achieve it, you know? Mm-hmm, and so that mm-hmm. was a piece of it too. And I still haven't gotten the company to where I want it to be. Like mm. I said, I, I bought a gym during COVID in, um, in Colorado and ended up having to close it a year and a half later because we just couldn't get the staff on board with the concept of meshing fitness and medical and everything else. And, you know, I had, I ended up going up there having sold all of the equipment in the gym to another party and going up there to hand over all the equipment and the keys showed up and all the equipment was gone because one of my employees had decided to steal everything over the weekend, had backed up a U-Haul truck, stolen at thousands and thousands and that, like probably a hundred thousand dollars worth in equipment, just loaded it in truck load by truck load, oh. took it down the street, two miles, decided he was going to start his own gym with our equipment. Oh so my God. We went driving around. I got oh a tip God. from one of the other employees who was like, you know, I think I know exactly where your equipment is. And uh, she said, go drive around this general area. I think he's trying to start something over there. And sure enough, found my jump boxes you know, shining out the window oh, of this facility. I'm my like, God. oh my God. Oh Are my you God. fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> so, so it was a whole big thing. But anyway, yeah. So that's, you know, that's Please the tell me that thing. resolved. It you got resolved. Your stuff back. We or? got all the stuff back. But the thing is, you know, the police were like, well, if you're going to file charges, we have to take all this stuff into uh, holding or whatever it is as evidence that they stole all of it. He said, they said, you're probably not going to get it back for six months. And you know, we had just sold it to somebody and needed the cash. And so yeah. the, the, the thing became, all right, you know, shithead. Yeah. If you bring all this stuff back tonight before midnight, um, we'll just, we won't press charges. We'll oh. let the whole thing go. But that's oh. how we had to do it in order to not create a whole nother six months of problems yeah. in a state I don't even live in. Oh so, my God. Hell of a thing. So yeah, yeah, so like that is just one little example right. of, <laughs> of having employees and businesses and things you're trying to, you know, trying to do all this great stuff. And like this particular employee, I'd gone to bat to, we couldn't really afford him. And yeah. I, I, I went to bat for him for six months to keep him on board because I was like, no, let's, you know, I, we promised this guy a job, but the numbers were dwindling and, you know, finances were not good. And everybody was like, we got to let him go. I'm like, let's keep him. And then he, he does that. So oh it's God. just, 
it's a constant daily thing to wake up and say, okay, what's wrong today? What do we need to solve with the business (laughs) today? But I think if you have very thick skin and you always keep the North star in mind that you're moving towards all of those things just become, you know, part of the daily grind, you know, it's just shit that happens in every business. So, wow. I mean, I'm flabbergasted just because I I could say I could never do that as far as there, there's a lot. I feel like this, that the gaining that thick skin that you yeah. have had to put on. And then I'm thinking in my brain, like the, the way you have to delegate your brain from a business perspective on patient care. And I don't know how many patients you still see, or if, if you're more sort of in this <laughs> yeah. ownership role at this yeah. point where it is more of the, you yeah. know, this administrative stuff and the managerial stuff, but how you switch back and forth from like patient care to yeah. taking care of your employees yep. and your good physicians that you have on staff versus over to music well, and creative and yeah, all the other yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then even yeah. just like the crap, like the lawsuits and the, yeah. this and that and yep. the insurance and you know, yep. like all that stuff no one wants to talk about. I feel like but. it's a it's an interesting thing because it's definitely different parts of your brain and it's it's I think it's kind of nice because whenever I get frustrated with stuff going on on the run lab side and on the business side, I can say, okay, let me pick up my guitar and work on music for a little bit. When I'm frustrated with the music side, I put that that down and go over and, you know, check the Slack channels and do all the things. Cause so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not treating patients at all anymore. And in okay. fact, I haven't seen one in probably two years. Okay. I've got a great doctor team. So they've, I've got a clinic director in Austin that manages the doctor team here. And then I've got a satellite location in Tampa and he's kind of self-sufficient out there. And then a gym and a doctor team out in Arizona and they're pretty self-sufficient okay. as well. So for me, most of the mind share is how do we make sure that everything's making money and that, you know, whatever's losing, how do we fix it? Blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. So okay. it's a lot of problem solving, okay. which I love anyway. Yeah. But okay. yeah, it's definitely different parts of the brain and it is hard to kind of keep it all balanced and sort of be, you'll, you'll be really deep into something and then, you know, something will come through on a Slack channel that says, Hey, we need to solve this. A patient's unhappy or whatever. And you kind of get sucked out of wherever you were in this really deep, cool vortex of creativity and like, oh no, back to reality of, you know, we got to pay the bills still. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so it's hard, but it's also cool because it keeps my brain, you know, just happy sort of on both sides of the fence mm, all the time. Okay. So I kind of love it. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk about music. So yeah. let me paint the picture of, of Annie. Um, she, you know, we in the Austin athletic community know, Visor and pigtails, Annie, like never in a race without a visor, never without the cute pigtails, like flying by you at like, no joke, a five minute mile, you know, like there's that. And then all of a sudden out of seemingly nowhere, I start to see wigs and electric guitars and I brought a bunch of people from the Austin Tri Club one time to do, you were doing a clinic for the Austin Triathletes Club. And there's a drum kit in the back of, <laughs> of, right. of your office. That. And you, like, you, we were like shuffling the triathletes out because you had band rehearsal afterwards. So what happened? Like when yeah. did this Tran- transformation so happened. I forgot again. about all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 No, funny. it was like blonde haired Kim with her visor. And then all of a sudden, I'm seeing like this 
like fiery red wig, like a pixie wig, and yeah, you yeah. know, a Daniel Boone hat. Oh yeah, with like a sparkly studded bra. And I'm like, yes. what is happening? Yes, yes. So that the transition. Yeah. So, so uh, right before COVID, so 2019 or so, um, sometime in that little that little period right before COVID, I got sort of pulled back into playing my trumpet again. So there's a band out of Arizona. Arizona called uh, Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. They used to be the refreshments back in the day. And they do like the theme song to King of the Hill. And they've got, they've had some pretty big hits back in the nineties. And so, um, they, uh, the the drummer has a, uh, kind of side project with all these other sort of famous musician guys. That's a Rolling Stones cover band. And he was like, Hey, bring your horn out and play with us. And I was like, well, I haven't played that thing in a long time, (laughs) but I kind of couldn't say no to this group of people. Cause like, if nothing else, it'll be a good story. Right. So I pull out my horn, dust that thing off, and I go join a rehearsal. And they're like, "Oh, they're like, you're not, you're not so bad. Maybe we should teach you the the Roger Klein uh, horn parts as well." So after not having played my horn in like ten years, all of a sudden I find myself on the stage in Mexico at this big <laughs> festival playing with Roger Klein's group for like you know four thousand people, and I'm like, "What has even just happened?" <laughs> And I was so nervous, like my hands were shaking, you know, there were a couple other horn players there. So they were great because they would be like, okay, it's A, it's A, you know, C sharp (laughs) or whatever. I'm like, okay, okay. And so, uh, so anyway, we had a great time and I came back from that first festival. It was in, in, uh, whenever, whenever it was. And I bought a, um, I bought a drum kit. Cause I was like, you know, I going back to my fifth you grade went self, back to that I always very wanted first to play the drums <laughs> so bad. So I bought a drum kit and I started learning how to play. And then I thought, you know, the other thing that's always been scary for me, it, going back to being a trumpet player who couldn't play by ear, you know, the idea of hearing changes was a big thing that I wished I could do. Because again, I never thought of myself as a real musician because I couldn't hear changes. And so I thought that was a thing. And then um, singing, I'd never sung in front of anybody. I'd never done karaoke. The idea was just terrifying, kind of like swimming. It was that same kind of like visceral fear thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I want to conquer this. Like, this is a thing that I want to, and sometime in my life, check this box that I have done once. And so I ended up buying a guitar and teaching myself a chord and writing a song with my one chord. This is all I could play. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go sing this at an open mic, you know? And I, I went to New World Deli in yeah. Austin. They do Monday night open mics. And I drank like half a bottle of wine, <laughs> a couple shots of whiskey. That tracks. This yes, tracks. right? Yeah. It, all, it all fits. Yeah. And, uh, and I got up there and I sang my song. And I remember it was so hard. Like you could do three songs. And I said, well, I only have one song. So I'll do one song and like two jokes. <laughs> because I can't, I can't play any other songs. Um, um, so I did. I did my one song. Now you're just describing my just, career. <laughs> one song. I get, and two I get jokes. one song yeah. and two jokes. Yeah. <laughs> so I sang my tune, and I remember sitting on this stool, and like I didn't know how to. I couldn't stand up and play guitar at the same time when I did this thing, and so the guitar's like sliding down my lap, and I don't know. I mean, I didn't know how to use a mic. There were just so many things about this first gig. Um, it wasn't even a gig. The first song I sang, uh, but I got out of that thing, and I thought, you know it was cool. Like nobody threw tomatoes at my head. Mm-hmm. People clapped. <laughs> you know, was it, it was, a, was it an inviting atmosphere or was inviting. it a friendly, like a friendly Yeah, Cause it was like, an open mic. So people are, you get all manner of people at yeah. those, you know, and yeah. people who have played for a long time and people who are new. And so it was just really cool, inviting, wonderful group of people. Yeah. And so I thought maybe I could, maybe I could get into this because I, as a kid, again, being super introverted, I wrote a lot of poetry. I read a lot. Like that was kind of how I spent 
spent my time, just alone time, you know, writing or whatever. And so this all sort of came full circle where I was like, oh, I, I love writing. Maybe I can get back into that. Started writing music. Uh, then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just hunkered down for that first year of COVID. I had actually gone on a road trip. So I went for like six weeks and I just took my guitar, my toothbrush, and my mountain bike and like one set of clothes. And I was like, I don't know when I'm going to come back, but I'm just going to go. And I did this whole big trip through Arizona and up the California coast and up to, you know, Washington, Oregon and through, uh, through Moab, got yeah. to go mountain biking in Moab, which oh, is cool. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but I wrote a lot of music on that trip and it just was kind of this, this sort of epiphany moment of like, Oh, okay, this is, I love this, you know? And ha- when I have time in my own head, my sort of go-to thing now is wanting to write music. And so I thought, I, I think I really like this. And so that was how this all started to spin itself up. So then I bought a keyboard and then I bought, you know, whatever I could just to try to learn how to play enough on all these instruments to be creative and to, you know, have a, a wealth of things at my disposal to write music. Mm-hmm. And so that was how everything kind of got into um, Slippery Slope in the music world. So then that first song that I wrote with the one chord, I thought, you know, I kind of like how this turned out. I'd like to learn about production and, you know, how do you even put this on Spotify? I don't know anything about any of that. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking uh, lessons at Eastside Music School, who has uh, a cool studio there. And this guy named Austin Sisler and and the owner of the place, Alex, they sat down with me and they taught me a bunch of stuff about production and how you put a song together and how you arrange it and blah, blah, blah. So we worked on running and we got that song ready to put out on Spotify. Spotify. And I, so I got to learn that whole process and I released it under Annie Davis and I was all proud. And then again, right in the middle of COVID. And so I decided I wanted to make a music video. And so I thought, okay, I can't, there's nobody to help me do this. Nobody wants to come out into the world right now. And so I just got a bunch of ridiculous clothes and tutus and sparkly things. (laughs) And I made this, you know, I live way out in the country. So I made this video myself and just learned how to edit it. And like, you can see my iPhone shadow in the, you know, like it's it's very, very DIY, right? But I was super proud of it. And I was like, this is cool because I'm really not techie. So learning how to do all this was a big deal. So I put it out on YouTube. And this lady gets on there and she comments about, um, she's like, those, those clothes are a bit too young for you. Oh, yeah. right away. Yeah, right away. Like one of the first comments I got. Right and I, I had been so proud. I mean, I'd stayed up all night. I was up at six in the morning still editing this video. And I was just like, oh, I'm so proud of this. You know, so when I put it out there, it was this big deal for me. And, uh, and then for that to be one of the first things that came through, I was like, oh, and I was kind of heartbroken for like 10 minutes. You know, I thought she's right. This is what, am, what the fuck, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I need to go back yeah. to just what, what am There's I doing There's a here? lot there because it's like, did you not even listen to the music? Yeah, like, no, nothing. Yeah, like, it, it was, was just a really catty, judgy, horrible social media comment, you yeah. know, that people just do because it's easy from behind the safety of your computer screen. Sure. Um, and so, so yeah, so I was heartbroken for a little bit. And then I, I kind of sat there and I thought about it and I thought, you know what? Fuck this lady. <laughs> I'm going to wear whatever the hell I want to. Yeah. I don't care what age I am or anything else. You know, <laughs> who is she to tell me what to wear? And so, um, so then I decided that that was, that was when the trashy Annie name was born. I was like, well, if, if people are going to call me trashy because I wear tutus on stage, then let's just <laughs> lean into that. And so that's how the band name trashy Annie came to be. And then, um, I spent the next year or so trying to get a band together 
together and that's been a constant work in progress. It's a hard thing to put a band together. Um, but yeah, now we're, now I have a band and we're touring and doing all kinds of fun things. And you went from playing one chord <laughs> on the guitar and being incredibly proficient at the trumpet to now I see you play the drums. I see you play more than one chord on your rhythm guitar. Yeah. So is that all self-taught at this yeah. point? Or yeah. have there been, okay, no yeah. formal lessons Mm-mm. in? No, I like to teach myself stuff because it feels empowering, you know, to feel like you did something. And I could definitely use some lessons. Like it's, it's just, <laughs> I need some lessons, but um, time is such a premium and it's hard. And because I live in the country, even getting to lessons and it's, you know, it's an hour each way from town. And so yeah. working that in on top of everything else is hard. And so I've just been working on, you know, what can I do to further my guitar chops and my drums and everything else so that it can continue to further my songwriting? Cause that's such a big deal yeah. is, you know, that's my first best use in the band is, is writing music. And so if I'm spending time on guitar, time on drums or whatever, it's kind of taking away from that little bit of time. And so I've just, I've tried to surround myself with really good players who can handle that stuff, you know, so that I can just sit and play some rhythm and, you know, work on my vocals and work on my lyrics and everything else and let them fill the rest of the the song out. And so okay. I think it's working pretty well now. Oh, the, the, the recorded stuff. And unfortunately, because it's podcasting, I'm not allowed to play any of your stuff, oh, the recorded stuff, but <laughs> trashyanny.com. And I know, do you have do you, does Trashy Annie like have a, a YouTube channel where yep. you're posting all the videos and yep. everything? Like you can see and hear for yourself both the imaging that we're talking about and the styling that we're talking about, as well as how you describe like the sound is full. Yeah. I mean, it is a full rock and roll band. Yeah. Um, however, you were named like an Americana, the Texas Americana Artist of the Year. Where do you feel like your genre lies? I think it's, so when I started writing music a couple of years ago, it was very singer-songwritery, you know, because that's kind of how everybody starts, I think, because it's just you and a guitar, you and a piano or whatever. And so it comes, you know, there's a lot of, sad introspective stuff from my early early stage and a lot of that I really still like I just haven't worked it up for the studio yet because it's always there I can always go back to that but where my heart really is is in rock and roll like I love Joan Jett I love everything from you know 70s and 80s rock is just so great and I think that a lot of that's sort of missing today in rock and roll when you hear rock and roll on Spotify you hear some weird stuff that's kind of, you know, groovy with the electronic stuff in the background. And it's cool, but yeah. it doesn't feel to me like what rock and roll, you know, kind of where it all came Just from. It's like a driving mm-hmm. rhythm yep. guitar four section. On the floor, four, like big, four, you know, yes, you know yes. just give me a big drum kit, you yes. know, and give me a big thumping kick drum. And so I think that, um, that my writing is going that direction. And so the, uh, the, fir- the few songs that are coming out on the new album in May, um, there's a lot of rock music in there and like big rock songs. It's, it feels, it's cool because I like writing a lot of stuff. And so this first album has some stripped down, uh, fiddle, heavy acoustic stuff. And then it's got some rock songs that are big, like thumping rock tunes like I like. And so I think, um, I don't want to veer away from that 
sort of almost dichotomy in writing. I like having a spread. I don't want to be all rock and roll or all stripped down singer songwriter or all country or any of it. So I think it's hard to pin us down into a genre, but I do think Americana is interesting because it's sort of this catch all like Americana defining Americana is really hard. And so I think if you're talking about Americana having kind of a, uh, roots in blues and rock and country and mm-hmm. folk even. Blue I think that's bluegrass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you smush all that together in a cool little shiny ball. And that is kind of what we do because mm-hmm. we've got a lot of, a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. And I think I, somebody said if, uh, if Joan Jett and Kid Rock had a baby, like that would be the trashy, which is kind of true because it's got like elements of country, elements of rock, a little bit of elements of rap and just like grittiness to the lyrics, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Oh but, my uh, God. but yeah, it was a, I thought that was a cool analogy. I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll well, take my, you know, and as you know, my husband and I host a, a radio show a couple of times a month on a radio station out of Bend, Oregon. And uh, it is a music show, so we focus on, we play probably, depending on the week, you know, depending on how much we talk, we play 25 to 30 songs in those two hours, and we featured one of your songs a few months ago, and I cannot wait to feature some of the new releases. Uh, so what is the name of the album? So the album is going to, so there's a little story behind the album, so okay. I'll tell you. Okay. So it's called, uh, it's called Sticks and Stones, and it has the, um, the back album art is screenshots of all of the horrible things people have said on social media <gasps> to me in the last year. Oh <laughs> my God. This makes big... me, this, that makes my heart like beat so fast. It goes yeah. back to that thick skin thing. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. it? It's yeah, it is. It's a bit, it's a big thing for me because I feel like, yeah. So the, 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 the front album art is a big glitter middle finger and that's what the back is. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, it's got the quote from the lady, like, aren't those clothes too young for you? It's got all kinds of horrible things people have said, um, because social media is horrible. It's like, let's be clear. It's just a terrible place that people just say anything that they want, you know, <laughs> trolls abound, doesn't matter. And, and I don't care. Not my music is not for everybody. I completely get it, but there's no reason to get on there and be mean just because you don't like the music. Why? Yeah. Why would you ever do that to somebody? So, um, so that's what the, that's what the album art is. And that'll be out May 19th. And this first, uh, single that just released, uh, last week, I think, or two weeks ago, it's called Born Pretty. And it's about, uh, it's about a girl who just has, she's got a glass eye. She's got a limp. She's got little bitty titties. She's got a gap <laughs> tooth. She's got greasy hair. She's got all the things. And she's like, well, I guess I got lucky. I was just born this pretty, you know? Oh, and it's all about just being okay with yourself, however you are. And when people kind of, you know, judge you or naysayers or whatever, just letting that stuff roll off and being okay with, you know, who we are. So I think that's what the Trashy Annie brand really stands for anyway. And so that particular tune for me is a really important one because I feel like it kind of embodies what I want this whole musical thing to be about is just, you know, people being themselves and being okay with it. Mm. Are you on a label? Or yeah. was this all self-funded? Uh, well, it's, it, 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 it is <laughs> yes self-funded. And yes. yes and yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. self-funded. Um, but, uh, but I got picked up by a label at the end of this last year called Cleopatra Records out of LA. And they're a really big label. They, uh, they work with indie artists. And they're primarily in kind of the goth and industrial world. That's sort of been where their um, staple cornerstone genre has been for a long time. But they're a really cool label. And they, I think that, I love that they're sort of taking a chance on me because I think they like the direction we're going with stuff and they feel like it's edgy enough and different enough that there's something there. And so, yeah, they've just been, they've been great to work with. And they let me have 
creative control over what I'm putting out in the world, which matters. You know, some yeah. of these labels have, they have a lot to say about what you need to be writing. And yeah. this label in particular is really good about supporting indie artists with what they want to put out in the world. Yeah. So. That's, that's, so educate me and my, and forgive my naivety, but what role then does the label play since you self-funded this record? Yeah. Um, what role do they play in all so of this? So they were already, so I was already down that path when I first got introduced to them. So labels will, there's a variety of things that labels can do. And nowadays it's so different than it was back in the day mm-hmm. when a label meant one thing. And now it means a lot of different things. I mean, people have a label just out of their bedroom now, you know, it's yeah, like everybody's yeah, got a label, yeah. whatever. Not everyone's on yes. Atlantic Records. Yeah, exactly. Or, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of DIY stuff out there. And so labels can kind of do as little or as much as they want for artists and a label like Cleopatra, they'll start off with somebody like me who's brand new to the scene and say, okay, we'll help you with your publishing, which is the um, kind of collecting all of the royalties that are out there. Cause you know, there's little uh, hundreds of cents floating around no matter where your music gets played, whether it's you're playing it at a show or it's on Spotify or, you know, YouTube or wherever. Like if I play it on the radio show, do you get a little bit? Yeah. Cause you pay that, uh, ASCAP yep. little bill, you know, every month or whatever it yep. is. And little fractions of those pennies go to the artists who wrote the songs. And so all of that money is floating out there somewhere. And so what part of what they do is they, they collect all of that stuff. And then they also just dis- distribute. So there'll be, I have a bunch of vinyl coming. So mm-hmm. they'll distribute vinyl. You're doing vinyl. That yes. is so rad. Yes. Oh it's one God. of the best. Cause when I first wrote a song, I thought someday I want to have a vinyl just because it's so cool. I wanted like a real album. Album. Yeah. So once I got the album together, I was like, I'm definitely doing a run of vinyl because I get a lot of requests for it too. Yeah. So I think it's it'll be cool. But anyway, they do all the distribution on that, so they can they have overseas dis- distribution through Amazon and everything else where they can handle sending all of that stuff out, processing all of those orders, um, and then they help promote. So they they as soon as my album dropped or my single even, they've got their promotion channels. So they help send that information out to magazines and podcasts and radio stations and all of those things. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff that I don't know how to do, nor do I have the Rolodex of people to reach out and say, Hey, I I just got a, an email from a station in Canada that's playing the, the new single. And they're like, we're getting such great feedback. And like, I would have never had that connection. I don't know how to get to those people. So it's that kind of stuff that's helpful. And then if you do well, then things open up like, okay, maybe we'll fund your next album because this first one did well, or maybe we've got connections to a booking. They don't do any booking with Cleopatra, but you know, maybe they've got connections to people who do if we're proving to have some success and if people are liking the music. So That's kind of how labels work nowadays. It's just a little different situation than saying, hey, we'll give you all the money to fund the album, but then we own the album. Because if they fund the album, they own the album. So Mm. then that's the thing Taylor Mm -hmm. Swift just ran into, right? Is like Mm -hmm. she couldn't get her master's back. And so she had to redo and do the Taylor version of all her master's because her previous label owned all of those masters. And so, you know, it just depends on what you're looking for as an artist. And I like the control and I have, you know, I... I'm able to fund my own path through this, which allows me more control than maybe somebody who can't. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of how it's God, that's the best description I've ever heard of, of like everything that they can do because it is so confusing to, yeah, you want the airplay and yeah, you want people to download like the digital downloads on Spotify or Apple music. You know, I, I often wonder because I download a bunch of albums or singles or whatever. And I'm like, 
how is the artist ever getting yep. paid on this? That's how. It all goes into these little sort of clearinghouse places and they put it all together and say, okay, here's your, and you can do it yourself as an artist, but it's just hard and it's time consuming to figure out where all the little fractions of cents are floating around out there. And so having a label do it and aggregate it all and just cut you a check every month is, is nice. And do you, is touring a potential good moneymaker, like touring and merch? Right now, touring is a money loser. Yeah. Um, But that's not, I think a lot of bands who are much further along than us, that's kind of how they're making their money now because mailbox money from record sales and streaming and stuff is is not what it used to be now that streaming is a thing because yeah. you know Spotify is, dominates and we just don't get much for those plays at all so for more established bands who can go to a decent sized venue and pack it out that's a pretty good way to make money between that and merch mm-hmm. for those of us who are really new to touring it's a challenge we still go out we go out to South Carolina. We play a bunch of venues out there. We just came back from a Phoenix run um, and played in Mexico. And all of that stuff, usually they'll pay you enough to sort of pay the bands, but a lot of times lodging is on you and food is on you and all of that. So it can definitely, and gas being so expensive. Whew, yeah. So, yeah. and I'm driving a 15 passenger van. So, you know, it's, <laughs> this is no joke. Yeah. Um, so right now touring is a as a money loser, potentially, you know, maybe break even if we're getting decent paying venues, but you have to get out on the road because going out and playing shows and meeting your fans and having them see you play live is this whole nother level of loyalty. You know, they love to meet you in person. They love to see a live show and a lot of them ask for it. You know, I've had people in Phoenix since I started this thing saying, please come out here and play. So when we went out and played, we had people show up. And so just picking the cities appropriately where, you know, you're going to have some people show up is also a good way to start it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mm-hmm. do all this stuff myself. I'm doing all the management and all the booking and everything. And so it's just, um, it's a lot to learn. Yeah. I, you know, and I'll make sure new. I get like the, the information to put in the show notes of where people can reach out or that'd be great. Yeah. T- if, if they are interested in booking the band yes. or as we were talking about before we hit record, you know, if there are, if you know of other bands in your area, that would be a good fit where you could do some shows with them or good venues in your area that you have connections with. House concerts. Do you do house concerts? Yep, absolutely. I mean, you'll do anything. We'll yeah. do anything. Birthday right. parties, you <laughs> name Birthday it. Birthday parties, yeah. Wait, I turned 50 in a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's good. I was going to say, we're not super uh, family friendly. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of songs about hookers and blow. So. Yeah. yeah. And there, that's, that's so funny because when you sent, uh, several months ago, you sent a couple of the tracks uh, for us to consider for airplay. And I listened to a couple of them. I'm like, Hmm. <laughs> there's a few I cannot play, unfortunately, yeah. but yeah. But yeah, we've uh, got a, we've got a good spread and it's, uh, it's funny because we'll go play, we played a seafood festival last year in South Carolina and it was awesome. And it was just very, uh, you know, it was a family friendly event. And so we're just doing our thing. Cause I'm like, listen, they, they hired trashy Annie. They got to know a little yeah. bit they're getting out of here, you yeah. know? So, uh, but we're playing these songs and, and, uh, the kids just love it. They're the, just dancing around. And they're not listening to the No, words. they don't know what a hooker is. They don't know right. what blow is, you know, and they're just out there having a good old time and they love the pink wig and the cat ears and everything. Yeah. So, so yeah. I started bringing little, um, stuffed animals and like beads and like Mardi Gras kind of crap to the, uh, to these shows to be able to hand out to kids and they just freaking love it so it's kind of funny how 
even though we're really a, an adult band, we can, we still can do a pretty, pretty good job when there's kids in the audience. Oh my gosh. Have fun. Yes. You know? So anyway, I'm trying to think of what's the cartoon band that you remind, like it was like a girl band. They were a cartoon though. It was like gem. Please tell gem? me it was gem in the hologram. It was gem. That's what I'm thinking of. Gem is truly outrageous. No, that's, what, that's, that's exactly who I'm thinking of is gem in the hologram. Cause that I reminds me the holograms of, because, yes. I love it. <laughs> no, it's like, it was like punk rock, but like, kids love this oh it's totally gem in the hologram you brought that up that makes me so happy i can't even tell you no <laughs> and the other thing is that i love that you freaking doubled down on the trashy side of yeah. it like i love that you doubled down on the costume because i can assure you if i got comments like that i would be like all right fine like i'm just like back to my cardigan i go or whatever <laughs> like i like i'd love that you just took that and literally gave it the middle finger yeah yeah, me too. Actually, that is one of the when it, when you talk about, you know, proud moments and kind of what did you learn and all that. I think that's a big deal. It's just not being afraid of judgment because people judge. We all do it. We all judge even unintentionally. You know, you look at somebody, you think something mm-hmm. and it it isn't it's just inherent in us as humans. That doesn't mean you have to type it on a screen to somebody, but right. you know, we all judge. Right. Let's be clear. Yeah. Um, but I think being okay with that and understanding who you are and what makes you happy and, you know, the, be the best person you can be, then you're going to, you're going to die a happy person. At least I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to lay on my deathbed and be like, you know what? It's okay. I wore pink wigs and tutus and it made me very happy. And here we are. (laughs) Um, okay. Yeah. Personal question. How old are you? If you, 47. 47. Yes. 47 47. and starting a rock star life. 47 going on eight. And, I know. and it, like, again, like, like the implications of that, where most of us going into that decade, because I'm also on the precipice, uh, I'm thinking about eating my dinners at 4 p.m. <laughs> you know, I'm going, I'm getting, I'm going, if Luby's was still open, <laughs> we're going there, you yes. know, at like five o'clock. Um, I am like in front of the TV by seven 30 in bed by eight 30 at night. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of starting to live. I'm like, I am heading that way. The retirement uh, life. Yes. And, <laughs> and you are going the opposite way. Like what, how is that? It's, it's a, uh, it's a mixed bag. I enjoy it. I love it. I mean, I just got off the road with a bunch of, you know, 25, 30 year old kids and we had so much fun. And I think the big thing that is different for me than probably 25 year olds is just the recovery time. I just need to, you know, and also being the the forced extrovert thing. I get done with a show and I am tired because there's a lot of output, a lot of energy that has to go out to the crowd. And, you know, you got to go talk to people afterwards and mm-hmm. do the whole thing. So I just need a little time to myself, especially in the mornings to just, you know, have a little quiet time and do a little work and sleep and all that. And it's hard when, they, when you're on the road because there's a schedule and everybody's, you know, I've got to manage the whole thing and make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be. Yes. Um, but, uh, <laughs> cause you don't have a tour manager, I don't have a tour manager yeah. yet, you yeah. know? And so all of that, all of that's just on me right now. Um, but I think that ultimately it is, I love it so much. And I was like this with Run Lab too. Even before I got back into music, I love it so much that it just gets me up every morning because I'm doing something that I have such passion for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing is if you're if you're doing things that you love so much, it doesn't matter what age you are or how much sleep you got the night before, you just get up and do it because you freaking love it. And I think that that's kind of where I am with music. I love it. And it gives me such energy because I love it. I love songwriting. I love standing on a stage and playing for people. You know, I love the, 
I was never, like I said, I had never done sports as a kid, so I wasn't ever part of a team. And even when I got into triathlon, you know, it's not really a team sport. You're just out there on your own doing your thing. And so being in a band for me has felt like the first experience of being part of a team. You know, if I make a mistake or somebody makes a mistake or whatever, like we all have to help each other get back. And I think that's a cool thing. And I love it. And I've just never gotten to experience that before. And, and now I get to do that all the time with my group. And it's a lot of fun. And they respect you as the band leader. And this is your project yeah. that they are in support of. Yeah. And I have this group now and it's, it's taken a long time. And I see not long time in the span of how long it takes a lot of bands to get to where they need to be. But for, for me, with my very impatient demeanor, <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me a very long time to get the right group of people, you know, because you, you deal with a lot of stuff in the music industry that you don't deal with in the regular business world. Like at what job is it okay to go do a line of Coke in the bathroom before you get <laughs> up and do your job? Like that is just not okay in any situation, you know? No. But I mean, in music, people are slugging back shots and doing Coke and, you know, sl- it's just a whole different world. And I, I don't like it. I want it to be like the regular business world where people call you back when they're supposed to. And when they book you, they book you. And like, there's a certain amount of money that is just, it shouldn't be wishy-washy, but it is. And so I think that's been a thing that's been a challenge for me to get used to and getting a band together that doesn't have alcohol problems, that all likes the same kind of music, that all has a similar schedule where people aren't playing in 80 different bands so Mm -hmm. they can actually commit to a tour schedule. That's a really hard thing to do. And now that we're in this kind of DIY world of music, everybody's creating music, you know, in their bedrooms, putting it out there into the world for better or worse. There's a lot of really good stuff and a lot of opportunities for people like me that would have probably never been able to do any of this 20 years ago before the internet allowed us to all just put our stuff out there. But on the flip side of that, there's just, there's a wall of noise to have to cut through and everybody's playing in all these different bands and creating their own stuff and blah, blah, blah. And so finding a group of committed people that all have the same goal is a really hard part of this industry. I need a kick in the ass because, um, I, like you grew up, like I wanted to be a singer songwriter and I, in my bedroom from about the age of 13 or 14, uh, until I like moved out of my parents' house, not, not like last year, but like, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Yeah. Um, until I was probably 19 or 20 cause I lived at home in college. I did not do the dorm thing, but, um, I had a four track recording studio in my bedroom I had my electric guitar. I had a really bad, like I had a Casio keyboard. Like a, you oh know, yeah, but like oh yeah, it wasn't like the little one on the desk. I mean, it was like a, a piano size. And then I had uh, an electronic drum kit with like the four yes. pads, and I would write horrific music, just like horrific <laughs> songs. And but I would produce them, and so like I, it was it. I lo- I got lost for. Well, years really, but like I, I would lose myself for hours. I would yep. look forward to Friday and Saturday nights because I got to play music yep. in my bedroom and, um, and I don't do that anymore. And I have come back to music on a few occasions. So, um, when I moved to Austin from Ohio, I worked in radio. So like I stayed in music but I like, I went the radio route. Yeah. So I was a DJ for a long time and then I was marketing director. And so I've always been peripherally around music and then got out of that altogether when I left the radio business and immersed myself in the athletic world for coaching and writing and things. 
And then I went back to music as an adult, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. And I come in and out where I will spend a lot of time with my guitar. And then somebody gave me a mandolin and I fell in love with the mandolin and I've played in little projects here and there. Um, but I put, I pick it up and then I put it down and I walk away for a while. Um, and I look at what you're doing now and I very much say I could never do that. And you could though. What <laughs> trust me, like, if I could do it, you could. I, I promise mean, you. <laughs> and, and some of it is like, do I have the wherewithal? Do I have the thick skin? Do I want to dedicate the time? Like, yeah. do I want to, you know, because you're not single, like, yeah. do I want to put that pressure on my relationship with my husband? Sure. Because you're gone, you're with these young kids. Like, yeah. there's a lot. There's a lot yeah. of dynamics there. So for anyone who has that creative endeavor yep. like something that they love to do as a kid dance yep. whatever yep um and we're sitting here now and i'm like oh, i just don't have it like i couldn't do it like what do you say i don't it's i think the more you get into it the more it is a snowball effect and starts to drive you and i think that when i started back into this stuff I kind of felt like that too. I was like, oh, one of my fingers hurt. Yeah. You know, trying on this stupid I, dude, guitar. I started playing it again last week because I knew I was going to be, and I was like, yeah. damn, one, one horrible. Hour, it hurts. You know, it hurts. And, and, you know, I can't play enough chords and I'm like getting all the crampy in my hand and all these things. And, um, but the more consistently I make myself go, and this was like this uh, trumpet back in the day too. You know, as long as I would sit down with that thing for half an hour, all of a sudden it started to just build on itself and then I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to go out and play my trumpet. I want to go out and play my guitar now. And so now it drives itself. But that early first year, I think it was about sort of forcing the consistency and saying, mm-hmm. okay, I, I want to be better than I am. And that's frustrating. And it's easy for me to want to just quit because I'm not where I want to be. And I'm like, oh, I need to be able to play other chords to be able to write other songs. And I'm frustrated. <laughs> so maybe I should just go watch some TV. Love is There's blind. A is lot on, of so let's TV. go. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hell of a lot of I watch the trashiest TV ever, frankly, because I want to break from my brain, but I also, uh, yeah. I do enjoy a little TV from time to time. Yeah. So, um, but I do think that that's the thing with, um, with getting to the next level in anything is, you know, they talk about the 10,000 hours you need to be an expert in things. And I'm like, fuck that 10,000 hours. Yeah. Like I won't get there till I die, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really less about that and more about just the consistency. And then Because once you break through a barrier, and you know how this is with running too, once you get to being able to run about a 5K, all of a sudden you start to kind of like it. Like, Mm -hmm. but if you can't run a 5K, running sucks. You know, (laughs) you're like, oh, everything hurts and I'm tired and I don't feel good and, you know, it's hard. But once you get to the point where you sort of experience that little bit of runner's high, things change. And I think it was the same way with music. And once I got to the point where I was kind of tipped over that hill of just basic proficiency, um, which you obviously have plenty of, but I think it's the consistency thing mm-hmm. um, that drives more than anything else. And just being able to get your your stuff out. Because if you're a songwriter in your in your gut, I just don't think that that ever goes away. Even if you set it on a shelf for a little while. Because it's a way to express yourself. I always tell people that 
if you, if, you know, if you're creative and you walk around telling people what's really in your head, people are like, you're a raving lunatic. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. But if you yep. put it in a song, people are like, well, that's just beautiful art. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can say literally anything in a song. You can talk about yeah. murdering people and doing <laughs> blow and doing all the things. And people are like, well, that's beautiful. I you mean, know? well done. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think that that's a big thing too, is just being okay putting whatever's in your guts kind of on the table for everyone to see. Mm. And, um, and there's something very cathartic for me, at least about that. Um, when I wrote a song about my dad who died of cancer, um, the one that I had come down here and showed up on his doorstep and said, Hey, here I am. We got a year with each other before he died that I never would have had, had I not made that pack and go move to Texas. Um, but so much of that pain, cause I wasn't a musician back then. Yeah. So much of that pain came out as soon as I bought a guitar and I was like, Oh, I've been carrying around this shit and uh, I just need to get it out. Yeah. And I wrote a song for my dad and it became one of my favorite songs because I just, I was, it was a way to express what I felt and not have it just carried around in my gut all the time. Yeah. Um, and other people connect with that. Because if I put that song out in the world, people write me messages and they're like, oh, this makes me feel less alone, you know, which is one of the coolest things I've ever had anybody say to me is mm-hmm. just, your, your music makes me feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And so that connection piece, you know, the threads to strangers is a really cool aspect of music too. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, you know, I think the thing that, that is, is hard is the consistency piece. But once you get the consistency piece down, everything else just starts to feel really good. Yeah. So, I don't know. Oh, that helps me so much. And the, and what I kind of took away as somebody who like loves the stage and yeah. and loves the yeah. the attention is that it like I don't have to have the aspirations that that you have. You know, I don't have to have the aspirations to tour and put out a record and and but like how awesome would I feel if I wrote a a song yeah. and had the cojones to go to New World Delhi and play it in front of 30 feel people. So good. That would feel so good. You would feel so good. Because the times that I have played on stage with other bands, like I get off that stage and I am like, yeah. this is what I was born to right. do. Right? Yeah, like this is what I it's was born so to do. awesome. Yeah. It's such a cool thing. And it's scary. And I think that's what's cool about it is doing something scary. And then you get off there, you're like, I did that. You know, I think back to a couple of years ago when I did my first gig at Sahara Lounge and it was just me by myself and I couldn't, it was my first like, okay, here's my music. And I had a big stand with all my written lyrics on it, you know, like a trapper keeper kind of a thing. (laughs) And I, I couldn't stand up and play and I was so nervous, you know, and then... Now I'm like, oh, I, I don't use lyrics anymore. Like I've, I can stand up and bounce around the stage. And it just, the progression helps keep me wanting to, you know, keep mm-hmm. going up the ladder. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you feel so good when you've done something that was scary um, when you do it. You know, even if it wasn't perfect, you come off, you're like, I fucking did that. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. are your aspirations for Trashy Annie? <sighs> like, where would you like to see it? I would like, my biggest goal right now is to be playing, I would like to play rooms full of people. And I don't even care if they're big rooms full of people. I just want to have shows that are well attended. Um, It's Austin is a hard place to get started. You know, there's a lot of cover bands that sort of inundates the industry right now. And if you're new to the scene, a lot of places, you know, won't give you the time of day. Um, And then if you do get a gig, a lot of times people don't, you know, there's so much competition and 
now we're competing with something we didn't compete with 20 or 30 years ago, which is Netflix, you know, sitting on your couch at night and just staying home, you know, live streaming or watching YouTube or whatever. So getting people out to shows is harder for bands of every caliber, not just newbies, but it's particularly hard for new people. And so I think that's our biggest struggle right now is, you know, playing the right kind of venues and getting enough people out to the shows. We have a lot of, a lot of supporters online. A lot of fans, a lot of people that are really engaged with the music, but getting those people to buy a ticket and come to a show is the next level thing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's kind of the short-term goal. And I think long-term goal, I'd love to tour internationally. I'd love to go to Europe, you know, be fun to go to somewhere like Australia or whatever. I just think it was really cool to go play Mexico for the first time because we got to, you know, there's a bunch of people down there, Spanish speaking people that love the music. They don't even speak English and they thought it was cool. And that was just a neat connector to people that I wouldn't have necessarily, in fact, this, um, this this cool look at that in that pretty oh my is that your guitar strap it's my guitar strap yeah so a guy a fan down in uh chihuahua mexico just made it for me he said you know i really want to make you a guitar strap i love your music and like we would have never crossed paths if it weren't for the internet and music and all the good things that come from social media yeah and so um so yeah i think that part of things is really cool and as far as where we want to go you know i want to i want to take it as far as it'll go i love I love writing music. I love playing in a band. I love performing and I love touring. So all of that stuff jives with let's do this, mm, you know, as mm. long as we can and as take it as far as we can go. You're a freaking rock star. Congratulations. Thank you. On, like, thank you. I Cheers. love this part of you. I, I, thank you. I'm just, I just, I love everything about it because I think it, it just, it, it speaks to that child in all of us who dreamed big without fear. And whether you wanted to be a princess or, you know, yeah. gem. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or Debbie Gibson in my case. <laughs> yes. Um, it like, it just, it just recaptures it. And I'm so excited for you. And thank you. You did bring your guitar strap. I did. Did you bring your guitar? I did. Would you mind playing a song? I don't mind playing a okay. song. Okay. Yes. Oh, that would be awesome. Okay. I'll pause this okay. now and we'll be right back. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm getting my own house concert right now (laughs) with uh annie davis um what are you gonna play for us i'm gonna play a tune called uh something in the water okay and it's a it's about escaping a cult (laughs) (laughs) i love i love your themes my husband's gonna come running down the stairs because he's gonna be like cult cult what what is there something about a cult (laughs) we we have to watch every i've been watching all of the shows on netflix lately about cults and i just can't get enough so anyway Easel on the table, something in the wall. There's a whore in the stable and a body in the dance hall. There's blood in the potatoes and there's something in the well. There's a wolf in the bed and a crack in the church bell. But the choir ain't singing There's a dove lying dead on the highway My fever's getting hotter Cause there's something in the water Something bad is coming our way So you grab the money, honey I'll go get the gun You grab the bullets, baby I'll be riding shotgun You grab the money, honey I'll shoot out the sun You ride the nose 
Let's run. There's scratches on the stable and something in the stall. Needle on the table and a horse in the dance hall. Fire in the kitchen and a tooth under the bed. Bone in the bra. And a kitten in the snake shed. snake shed man <laughs> blood in the potatoes and kittens in the snake shed <laughs> bad things for everybody yes thank you so much annie davis from trashy annie if you are in austin on april 25th you want to be at the 13th floor for the album release party of trashy annie the record is called sticks and stones to learn more just visit trashyannie.com. all of her tour dates are there all of her social media channels are there where you can follow along and get to know this rock star. Okay, I'm off to go practice my guitar. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Oh, and if you want to support this independent podcast, I too would appreciate it. There is a little link to an app called Buy Me a Coffee where you can drop a couple of bucks there in the coffer. It really helps keep independent podcasts like this one alive and well so that we can bring you the cool artists like Annie Davis. We'll talk to you soon.